Eastside, how are you? Everybody good? All right, I have one, one request before we get started. Um, somebody please get me a subscription to the Jelly of Month Club for Christmas for the staff gift cards. I'd love to have one of those. Now seriously, before we get into this, can we take a minute, can we thank Elizabeth Talbot and the worship team for taking us to the throne? Elizabeth beat me to the punch. I was gonna say that she has been serving and taking care of all of our middle school and high school worship services um, uh, much of this year, and she has just done a great job. She's working with a lot, of your, a lot of your young people, and she's just doing a wonderful job. So thank you, thank you so much to her uh, for being here and giving me the opportunity to be up here and do this. Online family, we are so glad that you are joining us today. Um, do us a favor, you are a big part of this church. You are a big part of our family here. If you would drop a comment below, down in the comment section, just let us know where you are worshiping from with us this week. We'd love to know and respond to that. Now, we have been in the second week now of our Griswold Christmas series, right? And so, speaking of Christmas, before we get into the sermon, I get the opportunity to share with you all our Christmas service times this year, and we're really excited. We've been, we've been holding those back from you a little bit. People have been asking about them, but here's what we're gonna be doing this year for Christmas at Eastside. We are going to have five services Christmas week. We'll have five services. Four of those services are gonna be on site. One of those services will be online, and those are gonna start on Thursday night. I believe that's the 22nd. So Thursday the 22nd at seven, and then Friday night at seven o'clock on the 23rd, we will have another service here that night. And then on the 24th, which is Christmas Eve, we will have two services that day. Those will be at three and 5 p.m. And then Christmas morning at 9 a.m., we are going to have an online service online. So here's what I wanna suggest and ask of you for Christmas morning. Get up, stay in your pajamas, Read the Christmas story, open presents, have breakfast with your family, and then stay in your pajamas, turn the TV on, let's all jump on there together online, and let's watch Eastside online on Christmas morning. Sound good? We're together on that? Okay. Before we get into the Word, before I start uh, talking my head off, if you guys would just join me, I'd like to pray over the Word right now. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to stand up here and to, to speak your Word, to speak truth from your Word. God, I just pray um, that the Holy Spirit would be here, that you would lead, guide, and direct everything that is said, everything that is taught. Um, we love you. We trust you. Thank you for using um, a busted up old guy like me to be able to stand in front of friends and family and talk about truths in your word. So we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody says amen. amen. All right. So have you all... I'm ready to preach now. Feel good. Feel good. Have you all ever wondered if we take this Christmas idea and this Christmas thing just a little bit too far? Um, images of Clark Griswold's huge Christmas tree, every inch of his house covered in lights, are metaphors for taking the holiday season to the extreme. And if you've seen any of that, you know how extreme it is. We've talked about it last week. But maybe God actually wants us to be extreme this season. In fact, when you read about the birth of Jesus, Dave talked to us about that last week, but when you read about the birth of Jesus in the Bible, it is just that, it is extreme. There's nothing normal or predictable or familiar about it. 
So what if, what if God is using this over-the-top story to reveal to us the extreme lives as Christians that he wants us to live? He wants us to live extraordinary lives. He doesn't want us to be normal. So last week, Dave um, kicked off our first week of the series talking about absolute obedience. And we learned about how that Joseph radically obeyed God's instructions, how he was quick to act, how he was quick to obey. And I love how Dave took that and was able to lay out a historical guidelines for us, a historical timeline of what exactly happened in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke as the time led up to Jesus being born. And it was just, I found it really, really fascinating. So in the second week of this series, we're gonna visit another extreme topic, another extreme concept from that story. And today we're gonna dive into the topic of active compassion, active compassion. And I'm gonna explain more about that in just a few minutes. Uh, First, I wanna continue in this journey that that we started last week. I wanna continue in this story as we're reading um, from our main text. And today that's gonna be Luke chapter two, four through seven. And I wanna read that to you. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit. So Luke chapter two, four through seven says this. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, where he belonged to the house and line of David. And they went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So there's, there's a, a little bit more of the story in Luke chapter two. Here's what, here's what we can look at that and we can, we can come away with some practical thoughts of that in those first verses. And I'm just gonna kind of rattle through, through some facts here. Here's what we can learn as far as what happened just from those verses. Number one, Joseph left Nazareth and he went to Bethlehem because he was of the house of David. So remember this, Jesus is in the bloodline, in the royal bloodline of King David. He is in that bloodline. And so when they did a census and he had to go back to Bethlehem because they were doing a census. And in those days, when they did a census, they didn't have a smartphone that they could fill a ballot out on their phone and just send it in. No, you had to take a pilgrimage to your town. So you had to go home and fill out that census and make a report. So they headed to Bethlehem. Mary went with him, number two. Mary went with him and they were pledged to be married but she was already expecting a child who was Jesus. And this is where the kind of the shock came in last week that we were talking about. The journey from, to Bethlehem was around 70 miles. So, so think about that. Um, two young kids, one pregnant, riding a donkey from here to Austin, Indiana and back. Good times. Good times. We complain now if we have to do that in our car. So while they were in Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor. uh, For the time had come for Jesus to be born. And she gives birth. And in in that verse, there's several things that happen there. And it mentions this. uh, The firstborn is mentioned, a son. The secondly, she wrapped him in cloth 
in what was the traditional garb then. This was to keep the baby warm, to make them feel a sense of security. And it, it's, it's, as I researched this a little bit, it's still actually pretty common practice um, in the Middle Eastern countries to wrap the baby real tight to keep them warm and secure. She then placed him in a manger. And we've heard that word our whole life, but a manger was actually a feeding trough for animals to eat out of. So this was some sort of contraption that had hay or whatever in it that animals would eat out of. No guest room was available for them. We see that in verse seven. There was no room. Now this was believed that they were in a stable, which in those days was often a cave that was carved out of the side of a hill or out of a rock. They would carve an entrance into that and that would be a place where the animals could go in, the livestock could go in to stay warm, um, to eat, to get out of the elements and not a very good place for a baby to be born and definitely not a very glorious place for a savior, for the king to be born. We wouldn't expected that. Now something happens in the midst of this also. And um, <laughs> I talked to my wife about it this week. I talked to Dave a little bit about it and I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on it and probably wasted a lot of time, but I thought it was pretty cool. I dug deep into some of this and I found some interesting things. Now I read and I study out of an NIV study Bible and the, the NIV study Bible in verse seven there says that there was no guest room. Well. Okay, other translations say there was no room for them in the inn. You've all heard that, right? There's no room for them in the inn. And other translations say a house or so forth. There's, there's different things that are said by the different translations. But I couldn't find any information in scripture that definitely, that definitely said that this was an inn that they went to or any mention that there was an actual innkeeper. You know, we think of this innkeeper that says, no, go away. I couldn't find anything that was definitive proof of that. So I did a little more reading. Some scholars say, yes, this was an inn. Um, some say it was a hotel. Some say it was a stable. And some even suggest that this may have been one of Joseph's family members' homes that they showed up to since they were going to Joseph's hometown in Bethlehem. So it makes sense that there would be family members there, right? All we know for sure is in the seventh verse. This is all we know for sure. Can't prove any of that. But we know in verse number seven that there was no room for them. There was no room for Mary. There was no room for Joseph. There was no room for this baby Jesus. So basically wherever they went, there was not room for them or someone didn't allow them to come in. Regardless, if this is a hotel, if it was a stable, if it was an inn, if it was one of Joseph's family members' homes, regardless of that, most likely some person stood in a doorway or stood in a gateway or stood in an entrance and looked at a pregnant teenage girl that had just walked or ridden on a donkey for 70 miles and said, I ain't got room for you. someone made the decision to stand there and say yes or say no. Now this could have been 
It doesn't even matter. This could have been somebody acting as a doorman or an innkeeper. Um, this could have been a librarian. Who cares? I don't even know where librarian, where that came from. So picture this. You've got, you've got a young Joseph and a young Mary. She's crazy pregnant. They've been traveling for however many days, 70 miles. They're tired. She's about to bust because she's pregnant. And Joseph comes and says, hey, uh, my girl's pregnant. Um, we need a place to crash. Uh, she's probably going to have this baby anytime. Uh, can we have a room or something, please? Can we have that closet back there? And this innkeeper, let's just say as an innkeeper says, nah, bro, we're full. But there's this little barn cave stable thing down there. It's got this thing in there called manger. You can let the kid lay in that if you want to. Not a very glorious place for a king to be born. Now, having said that, we can't, we shouldn't beat the innkeeper up too badly. Um, after all, there's, there's prophecies all through the Old Testament that predict the birth of Jesus. And um, those prophecies have to be fulfilled. And so somebody's got to stand there and fulfill them. There's different, there's different things in Isaiah 53. Uh, we see, uh, if you ever want to read Isaiah 53, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus, his birth and the lowly servanthood and the humble beginnings that he would have. It predicts that. And then in Micah chapters four and five, it's got really descriptive prophecies and details about his birthplace. Really fascinating stuff, Micah chapter four and five. But check out what the prophet Micah says and what he prophesied hundreds of years prior to Jesus being born. And this is in Micah uh, chapter five, verse two, and it says this, but you Bethlehem, <sighs> I forgot to ask Dave how to pronounce this. Ephrathah. Good, I got a thumbs up from somebody. That's good. So Ephrathah was a district in Bethlehem, kind of like a province or kind of like a, you know, um, like New York City has the different, the boroughs. That's kind of like what, what this was. That was a province there. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So when he says of old and from ancient times, he's saying this is, this, this is a baby that's going to be born, but he's from, he's been around a little bit already. So Micah's already predicting this. He's already predicting that Jesus was going to come to Bethlehem, to this simple town, to this simple shepherd community that wasn't as important as the other towns around it. But man, what the innkeeper did really, really contradicts what Jesus has asked us to do as Christians, doesn't it? It really contradicts that. Jesus does not want his followers to act like that. How in the world are you gonna turn your back on a pregnant teenage girl and say, I know you're getting ready to give birth. I ain't got room for you. You couldn't find a room anywhere in that dwelling or whatever it was. You couldn't find a room, any, a space anywhere for them. And to think if they only knew, if that person would only have known who this baby was that was getting ready to be born. If they would have known that this child that was getting ready to be born was gonna be the man that would understand compassion and reaching out to those less fortunate and to unrepresented people, if he would have known 
do you think that there would have been a different decision there? I wonder if he would have changed his answer to something else. Now we're going to get to the start of the sermon, okay? I know that that took a while, but I really feel like that setup was important to know a little bit of the history about what we're going to talk about. And so here's, here's where we're going to start the sermon here. And I'm going to punch you right in the chest with this one right off the top. How many times have we been that person? How many times have we been that person that said, no, I ain't got room for you? How many times have we stood in the doorway and made that decision about someone else? How many times in our life would we symbolically look at someone and say, I'm not going to have compassion for you? Probably more often than we want to admit. I know, I know for a fact that's more often than I want to admit. In order for us to grow here and learn from this, I think it's really important that we first understand what active compassion actually is. What is this active compassion? If you guys have heard me speak before, I'm, I'm, I don't go deep into the Greek and the Hebrew. Obviously, I couldn't read that word earlier. I don't go into the, the Greek and Hebrew like Dave does, but I'm, also, I'm always been fascinated with the origin of words and what they mean, how you put words together. And so I just go to the simple Webster's Dictionary and I look up what words mean. Um, I want to look at this word active and look at this word compassion and I want to put them together. I want to show you kind of what that means. So the word active means to engage or to be ready to engage. To engage or to be ready to engage. That sounds easy. Literally, this just means that we should be ready and willing to move. Action equals movement, right? So we should be willing to engage. We should be willing to move. Then the word compassion sympathetic pity or concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Concern for the sufferings of others. This is even easier to understand. Just care about what people are going through and then show them that. Show them that you care about what they're going through even if you don't understand it. Now, we've got the two separate words. Let's put those together. Let's see now what active compassion actually means. Active compassion means to engage, man, I'm not good at this, Woo. to engage in sympathy for others' sufferings and to be compelled to reduce the suffering. So you see the suffering and then you do something to ease the suffering. The active part means you're going to move towards it. The compassion part means that you're going to take part in helping. How are we doing there? Sometimes we probably do pretty good and sometimes we're probably pretty bad at that. I love this explanation though of this because isn't this what Jesus does for us? Is this not how he treats us? He didn't just see us and not take action. He did something about it. Not bad for a baby that no one had a room for that night. Not too bad. So, so how can we take this and apply this to our lives? How can we take this and, and get better at active compassion? In order to do that, we first have to answer um, and look at what Jesus did. Anytime I have trouble answering a question that's biblical or, or of morality, if I can't answer it myself, I have to look at the Bible and say, well, what did Jesus do in these situations? You know, the old, the old WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? 
But I literally have to look in Scripture and say, where, where are these examples that Jesus did? And who did he do this with and for? So here's some, here's some examples of, of how Jesus did this. And I'm going to kind of rifle through these. Uh, John 8, John chapter 8, the woman that committed adultery. Now, for those that don't know, adultery is cheating, right? And in those days, when you committed adultery, they typically killed you. They didn't mess around with that. They typically took you out in the street and stoned you. And so Jesus comes upon this woman. The religious leaders have her and they're gonna stone her. And they say, what would you have us do with this woman? And the scripture says that he's writing something in the sand. And then he steps back and he says, whichever one of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead, throw it. And you know what happened? One by one, they dropped their stones and they backed off. And he looked at the lady and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, I have none. And he said, then neither do I accuse you. Your sins are forgiven. And then he gave her instruction. He said, now go and leave this life of sin. He took action in her trouble. He forgave her. He had compassion on her and helped her get out of the situation and the suffering she was in. Matthew 15 is another example of him feeding people. Now, there's two awesome illustrations in scripture. One where he feeds the 5,000, and then there's another example where he feeds the 4,000. This is the, where he feeds the 4,000. When he fed the 5,000, it was with five loaves and two fish, right? We all know that story. But this is, this is cool in the sense that in Matthew 15, there's 4,000 people that have been following Jesus for three days while he taught. And he literally looked at his disciples at some point after three days, and this is what he said, and this is crazy with what we're teaching about. He said, I have compassion on these people because they're hungry. He literally said the exact phrase that we're talking about. So the disciples said, well, we've got, uh, we've got, um, we've got this amount of fish, We've got seven fish and a couple pieces of bread. I can't remember which one it was. They fed the 4,000 and they took the baskets after that and, and they had leftover. So he fed people. He was compassionate when they were hungry. In Mark chapter one, he heals a man of leprosy. Leprosy was a terrible, terrible disease and a plague back then. Um, those people were considered unclean. You could not, they didn't want you by them. They didn't want you near them. And you know what Jesus did? He engaged in his suffering. He ran to the problem. He always ran to the problem. He always has run to my problems. He healed that man. He healed that man of this disease that he had when nobody else would give him the time of day. This, uh, this next one in Mark chapter 10, it's called Blessing the Children. And... Um, I wanna read this to you, it's a passage, it's four verses, uh, chapter 10, 13 through 16. And I just found this to be really, really cool. We're gonna put that up here and read this together. Um, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But then the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. That word indignant means very angry. He said to them, let these little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Do not keep them away from me. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
He then took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. So look, look at this. This is fascinating. The disciples, these 12 awesome guys that are helped spreading the gospel all over the world, these disciples acted as the innkeeper and said, Jesus doesn't have time for you. We've got no room for you. Well, what happened? That made Jesus really mad. And Jesus said, what are, you, what are you doing? Do not keep these kids from coming to me. Um, I want to segue here on this for just a minute. I want to talk to you about something. I'm passionate about this, and our church is passionate about this. Jesus absolutely loved children. He loved kids. He spent time with them. He blessed them. He wanted to be around them. Now, I'm going to talk to all of us grown folks in the room real quick. Please hear me on this. There is a massive decline in children and younger generations that are following Jesus and coming to church. There's a massive decline. It's, a, it's almost like a mass exodus. And we are becoming less and less compassionate to them. Us grown folks are becoming less and less compassionate to this younger generation that needs us desperately. They need the love of Jesus that we have inside us. They need it desperately. There's a war going on for our kids. And we all know it, or we're all part of it. In this cancel culture, woke society where nobody looks out for anybody else, we all get caught up in our own stuff, nobody wants to talk to each other, and that includes a lot of us Christians. When are we gonna wake up and pay attention and actively have compassion for this next generation that so desperately needs Jesus? When are we gonna be compassionate instead of rejecting? When are we gonna step aside and say, there's room for you in the end? This generation needs us so bad, so bad, and they need the Jesus that's in us. So Jesus, through these examples, was compassionate to sinners, hungry people, sick people, children, and so many others. These are just a couple of examples. We couldn't even get into all of them. And so um, we've seen a little, a little demonstration of, of the things that Jesus was compassionate to people about. So let's switch gears and let's go to ways now that we can be actively compassionate like Jesus was. And uh, I want to lighten the room for just a minute here. Let's, uh, we're going to sh show some ways where we show compassion. Some of the obvious answers to this, okay? And um, please know my heart on this, that I, this is, I'm being, trying to be tender here. I'm trying to be gentle and sensitive. A lot of times when us as Christians here, we need to have compassion on people. We need to have compassion on people. The first thing that pops to the top of our list is poor homeless, those type of things, you know, the underrepresented. And that is a huge, huge, huge part of this. Huge part of this. Don't, don't, don't let that escape you. But a lot of us do a pretty decent job at that. We can always get better. But I want, I want to do for the purpose of today is I want us to go and look at some of the not obvious points of this, where compassion comes into play in ways we wouldn't think about, okay? So, how about this? How about with 
members of your family? Silence. Sometimes silence isn't golden. A lot of people in our families need compassion from us, don't they? Um, a lot of people in our families aren't Christians and they don't know Jesus, right? And those are the hardest ones to be around for me. But what I've realized in the last several days that's been convicting to me is, is, is that if, if someone does not know Jesus and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, they are suffering. So if they are suffering, I'm called to be compassionate to them because they don't know the same thing I know. As one of your pastors, I stand up here and I say, that's really, really hard for me because all of us have tough things in our family, but we deal with some tough family stuff too. So members of your family, how about, uh, how about this? How about that heathen at your work? <laughs> Everybody thought of somebody there. Everybody else's families here are perfect. No reaction we talk about heathens at work. You know, you got that guy at work that that cusses all the time and is lazy and tries to pawn his work off on you. You don't want to be around him. That guy's annoying. Uh, that guy is suffering because he doesn't know Jesus. And at one point in time in our lives, we needed compassion from somebody to tell us about Jesus. So why aren't we doing the same thing for him? Oh, here's a fun one. Annoying people. How many, how many of you have people in your life that they're not sinners, they're not. <laughs> I got people back there just hands shooting straight up in the air. How many people have people in your life that just annoy you so much? And they're great people. They don't know any better. And they're just annoying. This is the hardest one for me because I'm a pretty no-nonsense, straightforward person. I don't like annoying people. And guess what? I need to get over it and get better at that because I'm called to be compassionate to people and to engage with them and meet them where they're at. And here's my favorite one. How about this one? How about that mean, rude, nagging, ungrateful spouse of yours? <laughs> please notice this, please notice. We have, we have adjectives here to describe both men and women. I didn't just pick on one or the other because both of us, me and my wife, can both be mean and nagging and ungrateful to each other, right? Why are we, as Christians, why are we typically the least compassionate to our own spouse? That woman right over there knows how to push my buttons more than anybody in this world. And I, I the same for her. And we're not always the best at being the best compassionate to each other. Why is the one person that we're linked up with the most, why are we not compassionate to them? We got to get better here. This is just areas we got to get better at. So, after going through those, let me pose this question. Are you like Jesus or are you like me? Are you feeling more like the innkeeper right now? I know some people in this room right here that are really good at this. And I know some people in this room that need some work on this. And I, I've already said, I put myself in that category. So how can we take steps towards being better at this? We've seen how Jesus would do and what he did. We've seen now where we should do it. So how can, how can we do this? And working towards looking more like Jesus when it comes to compassion, and it's just like every other spiritual thing, it takes practice and it takes discipline. 
Practice and discipline, repetition to get better at these things. Um, do you remember earlier when we were talking about the kids and I said, um, there's a war going on right now for, for the hearts and the souls of our children, right? Well, I was wrestling around with that idea a little bit. And if you can take one thing out of here today, I, this is literally what I want you to take. Um, I took war and I made an acronym out of it. And I said, what is something simple that we can take, that we can try to put in our practice, a very practical way in our lives? And it's the word war. And this is what I want us to, what, what I want us to take with us and put into practice. War means this, watch, act, and repeat. Watch, act, and repeat. Watch for opportunities to help people. Keep your eyes open to a hurting world that's around us. Act when those opportunities arise. Don't wait. Listen, don't wait. You do it right away. This world is too broken and too hurting for us to not act when we've seen something that needs help. And then repeat. Repeat those actions day after day, hour after hour. We have the greatest opportunity right now in the history of the world. I really, really believe this. We have the greatest opportunity in the history of mankind because there are more hurting people in our world right now than there have ever been. And we have a more opportunity to show compassion to people than we ever have before. I wanna tell you about a couple times recently or, or in my life that I have seen and I have observed active compassion, this war concept um, from Jesus and from other people. I watched 11 people this week at Pathway give their lives to Jesus and go up in that baptistry. Saw 11 people do that. And every time I see that, I'm amazed at how loving and forgiving and compassionate Jesus is to us when we were suffering. And he rescues us and he has compassion on us. I got to watch that this week and I love seeing what Jesus did. We right now, my wife and I, we're in the middle of selling our home and buying a home and I had to preach this week and I've got Christmas in two weeks. We have a nine month old and a three year old. You guys see where I'm going with this? I have been stressed. I have been a mess. I, I have felt like, and I, this is a woe is me thing, I have felt like I've been suffering, okay? I have probably not been very fun to be around. And my sweet wife has been kind. She's been gentle. She's been patient. She could see I was hurting. And she met me where I was. She was compassionate. I still need that for a few more weeks too, by the way. <laughs> I watched a young woman that pathway on Tuesday night <clears throat> who was struggling and she simply needed somebody to look at her and say, Jesus loves you deeply. And then I watched a lady go up to her after our class, put her hands on her and pray over her to reaffirm that. Sometimes active compassion is simply praying for somebody. I've seen Jesus open prison doors for men in this room. I've seen people 
Jesus take away and deliver them from a life of addiction, from alcoholism, from drug addiction, from pornography. I've seen Jesus go to them in their suffering and be compassionate. He did that for me. In Matthew 25, it's another, another chapter in the Bible I, I highly recommend going and reading. Matthew 25, Jesus gives us some examples of active compassion and they are powerful. And I wanna just read these off real quick here. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit. Here's how, here's how serious Jesus is about these things. Jesus said that the people that do those things are the people who are righteous. Not really much more explanation than that. The people that do those things are the people who are righteous. Church, we, we're at war. We're at war for people. Watch, act, and repeat. I'm going to be honest, I wanted to memorize this next part. Um, it's from an experience that I had yesterday. And I realized that if I leave my paper for this next part, I'll talk to you for 30 minutes. And so I'm going to spare all of us that. But um, I want to be honest with you, for some reason, this sermon, I'm only preached here four or five times, but this sermon has been the hardest one for me to prepare for. Um, could have been all the other distractions we've had in our life. It could have been God trying to teach me a lesson or it could have been God telling me to pump the brakes and wait so I could go experience what I experienced yesterday. Cause I tried to write this two, three weeks ago and I'm being honest with you at 10 AM yesterday morning, I still didn't have a word on paper. And so I, uh, <laughs> was beginning to freak out a little bit and I told Dave, um, I said, well, today's the day it either happens or doesn't. He said, well, it's going to happen. <laughs> he said, you got you to preach tomorrow. It's going to happen. Um, typically, when I need to get away and study, and this is what a lot of us do as pastors. It's just an easy thing. We'll run down to a local coffee shop somewhere. You take your laptop and your Bible and notepad. We all sit there with our $7 cups of coffee, cheers into each other. Everybody, you know, everybody in there looks the same, acts the same, doing the same thing. And that's normally where I'm comfortable going. But I was in freak out mode and I needed total quiet, total silence, total seclusion. Definitely couldn't go back to my house because of a nine month old and a three year old. It wasn't happening. So I randomly, Randomly, God decided this for me. I wound up at a library. And um, you remember earlier when I mentioned, I said a librarian, I said, I don't know where that came from. You'll know now where that came from. For some strange reason, I decided to go to the library and I didn't go to the one that was closest to me. I'm not gonna tell you the location of this library because I wanna protect the people that were there but I'm gonna be descriptive here. Um, I didn't go to a library that was close to me. I went to one that was 10 miles away. And the whole time I'm driving, I'm like, why, why am I going to this library? I have no idea why I'm going to this library. 
I went because I wanted silence <laughs> and seclusion and quiet. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. I haven't been to a public library in probably 15 years. I'm a reader. I love to read. Um, I grew up in the libraries. Anybody remember the Pizza Hut personal pan pizzas for the read it clubs? They bring those out sizzling to the table. That's good stuff. But I haven't been to a library in probably 15, 16, 17 years. And I walked in. And what I experienced was um, absolutely nothing short of inspiring and convicting and eye-opening. I walked in and the library was clean. It was real nice. Had that smell of old books, you know, that old paper smell. If you're a reader, you know that and you love it. The decor was a little old, but it was clean, well taken care of. You could tell that the people that worked there had pride for their work environment. And I sat there for almost four hours. Got there about, I don't know, 10, 30, 11. And it was obvious that the clientele in the library were not students studying for exams or young, attractive families there letting their cute little kids check books out. It was nothing like that. The majority of the people there, and I say this with all sensitivity, were most likely homeless. A lot of them appeared, I can't make the assumption, but appearances, mentally ill, jobless, falling on hard times in their lives, you name it, they were represented there. And there was a lot of people. And I wondered what was going on. I wasn't upset about it or anything. I wasn't bothered by it, but I'm like, what is going on here? What is going on? This is a library. What, what is happening here? And so I went back to the back and I sat at a table and I spread my laptop and my Bible and my notes out. And I sat there for four hours, almost four hours watching. And I watched over and over and over and over and over different library employees assist these people with food bags, with job applications on the computers, general two to three minute conversations of kindness. I didn't see hardly any, any, any work with books. I saw a lot of work with people. And I was shocked at what I was watching. And um, one guy in particular came in, and you can tell, you could just tell when he came in that life had been, life had been hard, really hard for this guy. And he brings his bag in, and he sits down at the computer desk next to me, and um, his clothes were really dirty. His hair was long and stringy, and appeared that he hadn't washed it in probably several days. He was talking to himself, had the appearance of maybe some mental illness, by the way, and things he was saying. And a librarian approached him, and as he walked past me, he looked down at me and he smiled and he nodded. And I watched him deliver a bottle of water, some snacks, 
some food to that gentleman. I watched him gently and non-judgingly converse and laugh for a few moments. The guy was showing him something on YouTube that he thought was funny and librarians laughing. Hey man, that's, yeah, that's cool. Hey, don't, don't eat the food there at the computer, but when you're ready to eat, you know, there's a place over here. And his demeanor was kind. His approach was gentle. The guy was comfortable around him. So as the librarian started to walk away, I called him over and I said, hey man, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, uh, I'm a pastor and I'm having a lot of trouble writing my sermon this week. I didn't tell him what it was on yet. So I'm having a lot of trouble writing my sermon this week and I came to the library for peace and quiet and seclusion. And he kind of looked a little taken back. And I said, what, I, what I've seen instead is I got a beautiful, beautiful lesson about people caring for people like Jesus did. He smiled humbly, humbly. we talked about things for a few minutes. <clears throat> he, in, he informed me that this particular area, this particular town has no homeless shelter. And um, he explained that most of the people that worked there at the library had college degrees as librarians. I didn't know that was a, I did not know that was a degree. But most of them had, had gone to college to be librarians and to deal with literature and books and knowledge. And now, books were just the door to get the people there. And he said, sometimes the library was secondary to the needs of people. And he then explained they had a food pantry in the basement and that they'd fill bags and with things that people needed, with essentials that people needed. He told me that people were safe there. I asked him why he'd help the guy next to him, next to me, and I said, you didn't have to do that. I understand you're a kind guy, but why? why? I just wanna learn here. And he told me, he said, I'm, I'm a Christian. And we need to meet people where they are. I asked him his name and he said, my name's Aaron. And church, let me tell you this, Aaron and his team made sure that there was room in the inn. Aaron and his team went to war every single day, day after day, watching, acting, and repeating. And they didn't have to. I went up to the front desk guy on the way out and I thanked him for being kind and compassionate to people. And he was humble, he was full of humility. And then I stopped at the uh, front desk and I spoke to the security guard. And we wound up talking for 15, 20 minutes. He was an older retired gentleman that works there a few days a week. And we talked about the need of young men, needing strong young men in their life to build them up. I had a beautiful conversation. And I asked him, <clears throat> I told him, I said, My, uh, I'm writing a sermon. And I've just been here observing and this has just been beautiful to see. And I asked him, um, have you turned anybody away today? And he said, not today. He said, people are safe here. And I told him about the sermon topic and the innkeeper and Jesus. And I told him that I was thankful that he had shown me a picture of what Jesus looked like that day. And I got in my car and I left. And I came back to the church to write this sermon. <clears throat> 
And I haven't stopped thinking about Aaron the librarian since I left there yesterday. Active compassion like Jesus or rejection of people in need? What are we gonna choose? We're at war. We're at war. Watch, act, repeat. Will you be the innkeeper? Or will you be Aaron? Aaron.